0: If you consider the church in America today, friends, in the West in general, it would seem as if we've lost our prophetic voice. I read that recently, that that was the case. I mean, does anybody in our culture listen to the calls of the church to turn from sin, to repent and acknowledge God? It seems like they don't. Uh, They laugh and they mock us. They deride us and they consider us to be backwards and bigots. But all people everywhere were created by God, and they're created for God. The light of the gospel has gone out into almost every nation, and it's almost in every language as well, too. Of course, there are some places where it hasn't reached yet, and that's the hope and the goal of mission work is to bring it to these places. But especially in places that we call the West, you know, modern places, places that are Advanced beyond, you know, like those hunter and gatherer type of communities. Those are like the main places where the gospel hasn't gone forward to, where it's still these small tribal communities. Some of those still exist today. But in the West and everywhere else, you know, we are to have this prophetic voice within a new covenant context. Now, what does that mean? Well, people are either in covenant with God, Having the first man, Adam, as their representative, and those people are all technically under a curse. They're in need of salvation. Uh, Theologically speaking, it's called the covenant of works that they're in, with Adam as their federal head, their representative. They're not in the new covenant. Um, They're separated from God and all of his covenantal blessings. The gospel call does go out to them though. Isaiah 55, if we were to go back and look at Isaiah 55, it talks about the gospel going to all people kind of indiscriminately. That the call goes out and where it lands and where people are respond to it in faith, that depends upon the Lord. But it goes out to everybody. Also, we can look at Mark 16, it talks about going into the world and telling all of the creation the gospel call. Yes, well, I'm reusing my stuff. That's what you're saying, yeah. yeah. I actually said that you were t- you taught from it. He said that. you were... Oh, <laughs> um, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. So, Mark 16 at the end of Mark Mark 16. So, at the end of Mark 16, some people debate if that's really technically supposed to be part of the Bible. If you have a, like a newer translation, like the ESV or something like that, it'll probably say in parentheses. Right before it, like, some of the older manuscripts don't contain this. But anyways, at the end of Mark 16, it says that you were to go, the Great Commission in Mark, at least, it says that we're to go into all the world and tell the whole creation about the gospel, about Jesus' command uh, to make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded them, to tell everybody about the news of forgiveness and redemption offered in Christ. So to everyone. So people, um, having heard the gospel— having been born again and believing the gospel, are in a covenant with God through Christ as their federal head. So there's either people that are in covenant with God through Adam, and they're cursed, they're outside of the blessings of God, or people are in a covenant with God through Christ with Jesus as their representative. And that covenant's called the New Covenant. People are either in Adam or in Christ now. We may also say that people are under the ramifications of the Noahic covenant. Remember that covenant that God made with Noah? where he promised to never flood the earth again. And he also gave instruction to all of mankind, how we're supposed to live within nature, that we're supposed to take dominion, have families, be obedient to the Lord. Those things are all within that covenant to Noah. But individually with God, we are either in a covenant with him being represented by Adam, the covenant of works, or by Christ, the new covenant. And we are justified by God through faith in Christ in the new covenant alone. And the church today has a responsibility to tell others about Christ. That, that is still our responsibility today within the new covenant, uh, to tell others about God's holy law and their defense and their offense against it. That's our prophetic voice, in other words. Again, Isaiah 55 or Mark 16, just to name a couple places. Well, a similar thing existed for Israel, the nation of Israel at the time of the judges. It's a bit different, a bit more complex, because they're in a unique covenant with God at the time uh the the old covenant is what the new testament often calls it it's a covenant that consists of promises and regulations given to abraham and then to moses and then to david although at our point in the story here in judges the portion with david hasn't even happened yet right we've god's interacted with abraham and moses up to this point but he hasn't david hasn't came on the scene yet and within this old covenant there was a temporal Meaning in time, not speaking of salvation then, but in this physical life and in a physical place, there was blessing and cursing depending upon obedience, depending on how you would respond to the law of God. We've been seeing that in Judges. What would happen when the people were faithful to God and they worshiped him? Did their enemies attack him, attack them? No, right, they, they did not. They had peace in the land, we read. They had blessing. What would happen when the people would be adulterous and they would, uh, you know, chase after false idols, the Baals, often. They would have their enemies come and God's en- God would bring their enemies against them. They would persecute them. They would plunder them. That's what we had happening right before Gideon with the Midianites, right? And in chapter 7 and 8, maybe even <sighs> back to chapter 6, where the Midianites would come and they would just routed all of Israel for seven years, or once, once a year for seven years straight. Here in the Old Covenant, um, when they would sin, it was necessary for someone to speak with what we may call a prophetic voice, or someone to call the people on their actions. And we'll explain more of that in a moment. So we're continuing the narrative in chapter 9 tonight. So you can open up your Bible there. If you remember uh, Judges chapter 9, if you remember last time, which is two weeks ago, so, we took last Wednesday off for that conference. Remember, last time we read the whole chapter because the whole chapter of Judges 9 deals with this one grand narrative, this one overarching narrative, in which Abimelech rises to and falls from power, from a position of ruling in Israel. And so, like I mentioned last time, there's a clear outline in the chapter. I'm going to give it to you again so we can set up what we'll be dealing with tonight. Um, last time we covered verses 1 through 6. And verses 1 through 6 dealt with the sin of Abimelech, and, the, and, and in that way, the people of Israel as well, too. Transgression, that sets up the course of the narrative. And tonight, we're going to be considering the second and third portions of the story, which is verses 7 to 21, the second part. And that deals with the rebuke for the sin described in the first stage. And then 22 and through 57 deal with punishment for the sin. Now, do you remember the sin that happened in the beginning of the chapter? It was two weeks ago, after all. Gideon's died, and what did Abimelech do? Killed, we could almost say killed all of his brothers, all but one, right? One brother survived. God hid one brother. God let one brother to escape. But he killed 69 of his brothers, or 68 of his brothers, depending on how we're to think of that number, that round number of 70. And remember how he killed them? He, he killed them all in a single stone, almost like sacrificial type of thing. The people of Shechem, he goes to his mother's people. Abimelech's life is a little bit different than the rest of his brothers. He was He's a half-brother of Jotham and of Gideon's sons. I guess technically, most likely, a lot of them are half-brothers actually, right? Because not one woman didn't have 69 kids. That would be um, not possible, especially in this time period. But Abimelech was the son of a concubine. He wasn't the son of a, the son of one of Gideon's wives. He was the son of a concubine. And his mother was from the people of Shechem. Shechem was an important place. We talked about that last time. But that kind of makes Abimelech an outsider. And the inheritance likely wouldn't be given to him. So Abimelech goes to Shechem, to his mother's land and people, and they pay him to kill his brothers and to become the new leader. Much different than how the other rulers in Israel come during this time, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon Abimelech and make him judge over the people. No, Abimelech is a wicked tyrant. He kills off any contenders to the throne and he proclaims himself king of Israel. He's a false king. He's not appointed by God. He's not recognized by all of Israel. It's just the people of Shechem. Yet here we are. This is part of Yahweh's plan in eventually bringing about the true and greater deliverer, the man, Christ Jesus. So what will come of Abimelech's actions? What may we learn from them? That's, that's where we are. So let's read our text in chapter 9. Um, follow along. We'll pray after reading. Uh, I'm only going to read the portion 2. I'm not going to read 9 through 57 since we read a lot of those verses before. Uh, we're just going to read the second portion, 9, or verses 7 through 21. Um, because we're going to spend most of our time thinking about what happens there, okay? So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 7 in chapter 9. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Rain over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are, excuse me, are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig- tree, "You come and reign over us, but the fig-tree said to them, "Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees?" And the tree said to the vine, "You come and reign over us." But the vine said to them, "'Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees?" Then all the trees said to the bramble, "'You come and reign over us, And the bramble said to the trees. If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you dealt with Jerubbabel in his house and have done with him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed the son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice over you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Baer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. That ends the reading of God's holy inspired, sufficient word. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, for preserving it for us, for the story for us, Lord. And we ask you to give us understanding tonight, that we may take from it what we need to know, that we might live our lives in a way that honors you, that we might worship you rightly. Help us, Holy Spirit. We need you desperately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jotham, of course, knows that Abimelech has killed his brothers. He went into hiding at that point. Who would blame him? But here in verse 7, we learn that some people are loyal to him, and he hears that the people of Shechem have appointed Abimelech king. They've made, now that he's done what he said they would do, he has went and uh, the people have, a, have got him and made him their king. So Jotham, upon hearing what's happened, he does a kindness to them, and he calls them out for their sin. That's what he's doing here in telling this, this story. You know, we may not like it when we are told that we have sinned, that we have done wrong, but truly, that is our sin that makes us think that way. Now, listen to the wisdom offered in Proverbs, and there's many places we can make this claim from, but this, this will suffice. Proverbs 15:31 to 32 says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. You see, when someone offers to us a rebuke, when someone offers to us correction, whether it's a parent, a friend, someone over us, or perhaps even a stranger who simply has the word of God in his mouth, it's the kindness of God and the goodness of God behind that. Because in a person doing so, we have the opportunity to repent and turn from our sin. God doesn't have to do that to us. He could just leave us in our sin. But when a rebuke comes to us, it's the kindness of the Lord because it gives us an opportunity to repent. And that is what Jotham is doing here. He goes specifically to Mount Gerizim. I don't know how high up or anything like that. Perhaps it's just like a way to magnify one's voice. I mean, there's a sermon on the mount that Jesus gives after all. But Jotham goes to Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, by the way, means mount of blessing. And he lifts up his voice in effect to bless the people of Shechem. Right? Mount Gerizim is the mount of blessing. That's what it means. And him telling them about what their sin is, is him, in fact, blessing them, giving them an opportunity to turn from that sin and to repent and to make things right, uh, to to seek God according to how he should be sought. But if they don't listen to him, well, then what's the opposite of a blessing? It's a curse, right? It's a curse when you don't listen, especially here in the in the Old Covenant. Now, we're in the Old Covenant paradigm of cursing and blessing. The people of Shechem have transgressed God's law in pop, propping up Abimelech. And now here is a prophetic voice to call them to repent. He says, listen to me, that God may listen to you. Verse 7. He's saying, in other words, what I have to say to you and your response to it is this: is as if you are engaging God himself that's what he's meaning when he when he says to them listen to me that God may listen to you that he's he's giving them an opportunity to to interact with what actually the lord says now the people of Shechem don't answer to Jotham right he's not their king he's not the one who's ruling over them god is the true king but Jotham has in our passage assumed the role of a prophet he's speaking for god here now a couple of things because i think sometimes we get a little narrow in our definition of a prophet and prophecy uh, when we think of a prophet, we often think of someone who tells of a yet-to-happen future event, right? That's that's probably the, the most common way that we think of that. And it's true. That is what a prophet is. I have a book called The Messianic Prophecies of the Bible. It's pretty thick. It's the size of like a, a hardback Bible, of a study Bible. It's a pretty thick book. Um, and it's all these different passages in the Bible that tell of Jesus' first and second coming. Things that were revealed before they actually happened. Uh, things that were revealed before Jesus' first coming and things that also have that been revealed about a second coming, which of course hasn't happened yet. And so when we think of a prophet, the office of a prophet, like kind of like the office in the the Bible talks about different offices that men may hold, like the office, office of a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher, those sorts of things. There's also the office of a prophet, like the sort, it's like, those, that office was held by the sort of men that I read in scripture, such as like Isaiah and Ezekiel and others like them. They spoke for God and sometimes would proclaim future events that had yet to happen, but would certainly happen. Sometimes, though, they also spoke of things that would happen if there wasn't a change in the people. Not that God himself would change, but things that would happen if people didn't change. Um, So think of Jonah and the Ninevites, for example. Jonah prophesied that they would be under God's wrath if they didn't repent. And what happened with the Ninevites? They repented in sackcloth and ashes, right? And so God's wrath didn't come upon them. It's not that God changed at all, but that they changed their actions so God's disposition towards them wasn't one of wrath in that moment. And so not only um, it was the providence of God that they you know repented from that, and they did what God required, and so you know, wrath didn't come upon them. So that's one way that a prophet works. But not only does a prophet tell of future events that will happen and of future events that might happen if people don't change, which is the reason why we don't have prophets today, by the way, because all the future plans that we need to know about God's plan of redemption have already been told to us. So we don't have prophets today because everything that we need to know about God's purposes and redemption have been given to us already. There's no new revelation of God. But there is the explaining of God's given revelation that is still required and needed. And that comes with what is called the prophetic voice. When we think of the prophets in the Bible, they didn't only give new revelation, but they also called people to believe what God had already revealed, what God had already said. They had a word for people in their time, for their time, in other words. And that's what Jotham is doing here. He's speaking with the authority of God. He's telling them what God requires. He's preaching, as it were, and Mount Gerizim is his pulpit. He's giving them a chance to repent. And he does it in a kind of a unique way, doesn't he? He uses a story. He uses a parable. Uh, Some commentators call it a fable, actually. It has some plants. He mentions an olive tree. A fig tree and a vine, and then at least, and lastly, a bramble. In other words, three popular and useful trees in Israel, and then one useless and abundant tree, but it's useless as useless plant. And it's not really about trees, of course. It's about the people of Shechem and their actions. And Jotham lays the people of Shechem bare and before God through this parable. So, as he has it, he the, the trees go to three different kinds of trees, and he and they ask the other trees to rule over them. First, they go to the olive tree, but the olive tree says, shall I, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? That's verse 9. In a similar way, the fig tree answers, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? That's verse 11. And thirdly, the vine shall I leave, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the, over the trees? Verse 13. The implied answer is an emphatic no. Right, that's what they're saying and all that. They're all saying, no, they won't do that. Yeah, Adam? How's the vine a tree? I know. I, it's a plant, right? I mean, it's a—it's we'll call it a grape tree for the <laughs> purposes of our night. It's a parable, so I, I'm assuming that he's – or a fable, according to some commentators. Um, great, so they, yeah, I thinking, like, like, can it be big? A vine. Well, it's a vine. Some vines can be bigger than others. I think about the think about the grapes in this land. At least remember remember what they were like when Joshua and them were coming in. They were supposedly huge. They were these big giant, you know, grapes. Yeah. That's why I kind of, when I was talking, I'm saying plants as well, trees, but the idea is these three different types of bushes, common, three different types of plants, plants, three different types of plants, common, They they the three produce good things, the one doesn't produce a good thing. And the three good ones all say, no, no, I like my station. Uh, when asked to be raised above the station that they were created for, all three of these plants said no. They responded in wisdom and they said never. They knew they were useful in the capacity in which they already existed, but the parable goes on, and the trees turn to the bramble and ask him to reign over them. A bramble is not a tree either. A bramble is a thorn bush. It doesn't have fruit, doesn't provide anything good for the people normally. It's worthless and fruitless, and this worthless tree loves the idea. This worthless plant loves the idea, and he tells that he'd happily be their king if they did what was in, if they did what they did in faith and righteousness. And he, and he says, take refuge in my shade, meaning his protection, which is ironic because a bramble doesn't actually have a lot of shade. So it would seem that in the parable, the three useful trees which refuse the office of the king are referring back to something that we read about a couple months ago, or a month ago at least. Um, back in chapter 8, 822, tells us the people of Israel wanted to exalt Gideon And then Gideon's son, and then Gideon's grandson. Remember, they wanted Gideon to be king. They're like, Gideon, you be king, and then your son, and then your grandson. In other words, like establishing a dynasty, a monarchy through Gideon. And Gideon's response was to say, no, the Lord is your king. I'm not going to do that. But then in his action, he kind of went along with it, unfortunately. But his response was no, just like these trees were, these three trees. So maybe the olive tree is Gideon, the fig tree is Gideon's son, the vineyard would be Gideon's grandson if we're, if the imagery is taking us back to that. But then there is this bramble that thinks it's a good idea. Uh, Pastor Luke Walk- Walker notes that often. The most qualified men will not strive to exalt themselves to the offices they are qualified for, but those who are worthless and without qualification are too often self-seeking and self-assertive. And we remember the last time we were thinking about why it matters about the kind of leaders we choose for ourselves. Well, Abimelech wants this position that he's not qualified for. He asserts himself to it, but here is Gideon and some other men who were more qualified and they, they didn't want it. So Abimelech is this self-seeking, self-assertive person. He's like Jotham's bramble. A bramble doesn't provide shade, doesn't provide protection. A bramble is full of thorns, but it's good for something, actually. It's good for kindling fire. And Jotham is a good example of a prophetic voice because he doesn't leave his hearers guessing at what is meant by the ultimate point of this parable. There are times when it's right to leave a parable open, of course. I mean, Jesus did that. He spoke in parables often so that only those who were... Chosen to understand, would understand. But Jotham here is rebuking and giving the people an opportunity to repent. So in verses 16 to 20, he lets them know what he means. If the people of Shechem acted in good faith by propping up Abimelech and appointing him as king, then they have nothing to worry about. If they didn't, and if they don't repent, then a curse will come upon them and fire from the bramble, who is Abimelech, will burn them all down, as it were. And after Jotham finished saying that, he didn't stick around verse 21 if you read that yeah he he ran now that should tell us a little bit about how the people responded to his word he fled but his word was delivered and the rest of the chapter records how it all came to pass god himself ends up sending an evil spirit between abimelech and the men of shechem verse 23 god in his absolute sovereignty even purposes evil to bring about good for his people and other leaders appear on the scene and they they try to steer the people away from Abimelech. Abimelech ends up burning a thousand people alive for this treason against him. We read that last time. Literally, the prophecy is coming true and the foolish people were were rewarded for their foolish leader that they chose. If you remember from last time, Abimelech was utterly humiliated in his death. Once again, uh, God uses a woman to bring about judgment upon a prideful man. It's National Women's Month, right? So it's appropriate that we talk about this woman who killed Abimelech, this foolish leader who tried to elevate himself above God's will and God's plan. She's not even named. We don't even know her name. Not like, you know, Jael, who we, who we know uh, killed Sisera with her tent peg. This woman is just mentioned as someone who was in this tower that Abimelech was going to tear down because he was, his wrath was coming against the people. And so she throws a millstone out from the top of this tower, and it hits his head, and it crushes his head. And he doesn't die immediately from that, and he calls his armor bearer to, to kill him because he doesn't want to be humiliated by dying the way that he died. But the story is recorded in Scripture about the fall of this man who sought to exalt himself over God's plan. Proverbs 10, what the wicked dreads will come upon him. And so the story notes that, or it closes by noting that God made all of the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them because they refused to hear him. And in doing so, they refused to hear God. They refused to repent. And so the fulfillment of the prophecy from Jotham because the people refused to repent, it is the judgment of God. It's righteous judgment. Uh, There is judgment coming upon this whole world that doesn't listen to God. And we get a small picture of it here happening here in in Judges chapter 9. It's righteous judgment. Judgment will come upon all who fail to listen to God's warnings. Well, the people of Shechem are not all that different than the people who live today. Uh, Just like the people in our narrative ended up choosing leaders that ended in their own destruction, we do likewise today as well. Maybe not in such spectacular fashion, but nevertheless, we live in a society in which the vast majority of people don't heed the Lord. They don't listen to his warnings. Rather, they live according to the standard that they think is right. I mean, just consider all the foolishness of our day. Uh, the celebration of sexual immorality. I was listening to something today. Um, it was some, some other guy's podcast, his teaching series, where he was listening to Vodibachum. So it's like this weird four-dimensional thing that I'm telling you about, I guess, now. But Vodibachum is talking about um, just how accustomed we are to sexual immorality, that we live in a society where sexual immorality, like it's on a scale of one to ten, where we're just saturated in it around like a, a five. And so things don't even shock us, really, unless it's like an eight or a nine. But we should be way, way more sensitive to that already. But it's just so normal for us. Uh, we have the breakdown of our families all over the place. There's transgenderism is this hugely talked about thing now. Racism, new definition of racism even. Think of the rampant lack of trust in God, which is on display daily. And where is the church in all of this? Where is our prophetic voice? What is our role? What Are we, are we supposed to just sit back and watch it all happen and watch everything fall into chaos? It's been noted before, I mentioned earlier, Douglas Wilson actually said it, that American Christianity has lost its prophetic voice. And perhaps that's true. I'm not totally convinced that's the case, though. Perhaps the reason that much of American Christianity has lost its prophetic voice is because much of American Christianity isn't actually Christianity. That's something we need to come to grips with. That much of who professes to be the church that we know who says they're Christian isn't actually part of Christ's church, and so of course, if that's the case, well, what? For, I mean, just listen to so many people that profess to be Christian today who want to say, um, you know, that God accepts homosexuality, that God is fine with you know transgenderism. That is a popular message today among some people who profess to be Christian. But that's you've lost your prophetic voice if that's the case. But again, you're not even Christian at that point because a prophetic voice would, hit, would herald God's message, and those people aren't heralding God's words. The reality is just because many in the world don't seem to heed the prophetic voice of the church, it doesn't mean that we've lost it. Even the people in Jotham's day, right, they didn't heed Jotham's warning, but Jotham, as part of the church, still did what was right. He still had a prophetic voice even though the people didn't respond in a good way. In Christ, we're not of this world. We are still nonetheless in the world. And remember what Jesus said about us. This doesn't change based upon how the world responds. So let's go to Matthew 5. You guys, we'll we'll close here looking at Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, okay? If we think about Mount Gerizim being, you know, translated to the Mount of Blessing, the sermon where jesus the mountain where jesus gives this sermon really is the mount of blessing i mean it starts out telling what the the beatitudes are right those blessed statements i don't know what mountain they're actually on it would be really interesting if it was mount gerizum but i don't know that it is i'll try to find that out actually because now i'm interested in knowing but anyway this is matthew 5 and jesus first goes off about um you know those those blessed statements what it means to be a believer. And then in verse 13, he says this. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it very well could be that much of what makes up American Christianity has lost its taste. It's salt that is no good anymore. So it just needs to be thrown out. It's worth being trampled underfoot. But if that's the case and that's true, then it's not true Christianity. The true church remains the salt of the earth. It remains to be a light to the world, a city that's on a hill that can't be hidden. That doesn't mean the world will listen, but listening or not doesn't change the character of God's people. And the instruction here is clear. We're to let our light shine before others. How do we do that? By doing our good works before them. We don't retreat and hide out and go to a holy huddle. We live in this world and we're witnesses to God and of God to it. But how is it that we do that exactly? Well, Jesus continues, verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we keep the law on our lips, as it were. We don't relax on them and teach others to relax. We do the opposite. We're salt and light. Not because the law saves us. Jesus goes on to say that we need a righteousness greater than the Pharisees in verse 20. In other words, meaning that we need his righteousness applied to us. Keeping the law doesn't make anybody saved. But we need to maintain a prophetic voice as a church, making known God's testimony in Christ that Jesus fulfilled the law. What he said in verse 17. That that the law matters because Jesus fulfilled it and his righteousness in fulfilling it uh, is what is attributed to us so that we might be saved. We need by grace to continue to say these things because that is what our message is. We don't have a parable about trees to tell people. We tell people about the man who died upon the tree to save sinners. Remember what I said earlier, that everyone now is in a covenant with God through Adam or through Christ. In Adam, the law is violated, but in Christ, the law is kept. And in Christ, our sins are forgiven because Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. You know, just like Jotham, he was a hidden son. God kept him secret or kept him hidden from harm. Or just like God kept, excuse me, Jotham secret and hidden, God kept Jesus From harm, he kept him from sin providentially, and also by his own divine power, he was kept until that very right time. Uh, You know, Jotham, after he delivered his message of judgment to the people, he fled; he went back into hiding. But Christ, the Son of God, didn't flee from those who wanted to kill him. He went like a lamb to the slaughter by the foreordained plan and purpose of God to the cross where he would take upon himself the wrath that our sins have merited so that we could gain his righteousness and share in his resurrection because death couldn't hold him. Death had no power over him and all who are in him, death will have no power over as well. That's that's our message. That's our prophetic voice that we need to tell to the world around us, no matter if they listen to us or not. It's not up to us if they listen. That's what God does. Our job is simple. It's just to tell people of this good news that death will have no power over you if you are in Christ, but if you are not in Christ right now, death is your master. Sin is your master. and We don't lose it because we can't lose it because it can't be lost. Christ has sat down victorious at the right hand of the Father and all things on heaven and on earth are under his feet, we read in Ephesians 1. Okay, so let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you that Christ is our mediator, our redeemer, our savior. We thank you that his message of victory um, can never be stopped and that it's going to continue, we know, until all of the elect are drawn in. Lord, we, we do pray, though, that you would find it in your mercy to let our efforts be successful. Uh, it's, it's hard It's to, to tell people of their sin. It's hard to tell people of their judgment that's coming down upon them, Lord, but we know that if we truly do love our neighbors, then we'll tell them of the hope that exists in Christ. It's weird, Lord, we live in a world right now where we're being told, you know, to wear a mask is what it means to love your neighbor. But we know, in fact, uh, to truly love someone would mean to tell them of the good news that is in Christ. So let us not overlook that ever, Lord. Give us grace that we may be bold witnesses for you. Let us not be like so many in this nation who who do seem to have lost their prophetic voice, but that's because we know that they end up teaching the doctrines of men. Help us instead to teach your your word, uh, the doctrines of Christ, that you might be exalted and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.